A reading from the book of John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You may have a seat. Well, good morning, Rise City Church. It is such a joy to see you this morning. And as we begin this morning, I have a question for you just to kind of think about. What was something that you believed as a kid, but later found out that it was actually a lie? You know, we all have these kind of misconceptions. Uh, you know, you see a white cow and uh, a brown cow, and you think, okay, so milk, and from the white cow and from the brown cow, obviously, chocolate milk, right? That's where the chocolate milk comes from. Or uh, maybe you're like me, you grew up in Sunday school and you heard the story of God creating Eve out of the rib of Adam, and maybe you were even told this, like I was, that now all men have one less rib than all women. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. All doctors know that God is real because of this. Um, or maybe, you know, you're eating watermelon on a summer day, and, and as a kid, you were told that if you swallowed a watermelon seed, that it would begin to grow in your stomach, right? And, or, you know, you, you're going to school as a grade schooler, and you're walking into class every morning, and guess who's there? Your teacher. So they must obviously live there and sleep in the classroom, right? You see, as kids, we always believe what we're told. We, we are so set up to believe what we've been told, Yet, as we grow up and we found out that, that these things aren't true, we begin to pick up cynicism and skepticism along the way to various degrees. And, and what can happen then is when we are then confronted with uh, questions or circumstances or experience that we don't have evidence to support or maybe sound too good to be true, we begin to doubt. We begin to doubt. And, and we've actually been taught to doubt and question those things. And now I want to say this, doubt is not unbelief. Doubt is not unbelief. And in doubt, we are just wrestling through questions. And the answers to those questions will determine the direction of your life. And I know the relationship between belief and doubt can be complex, but let me say this, God never wastes 
doubt. He never wastes a season of doubt. And, and what we're going to do today is, is we're going to look at, at how God meets each one of us in our seasons and moments of doubt. There's a, a man that we're introduced to in this story, and, and he kind of has a famous name, uh, Doubting Thomas, right? He's known because he was doubting. And, and the first thing that we see about Thomas in, in the passage, number 20, uh, chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 24, uh, now Thomas, called Didymus, which uh, for those of you who don't know, it means the twin, uh, one of the 12 disciples that were kind of like Jesus's main group that he hung out with when he was on earth, was not with the other disciples when Jesus had showed up in that room previously. And, and so the other disciples then come to Thomas and they're like, hey, we have seen the Lord. I'm sure, you know, Peter's jumping in and he's like, hey, he, he came and he showed us his hands and his side and they're all talking over each other and John's like, yeah, and he breathed on us and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Bartholomew chimes in and he's like, you know, we, we received authority to forgive sin or not forgive sin. It was weird, but, but we see, we've seen Jesus. He's risen, Thomas. And they're so excited. And, and I'm sure as Thomas is hearing all this, he has this moment and a feeling that he just missed out on something important with Jesus. He missed out on this moment with Jesus. And, and I don't know if you're here this morning um, feeling like this, but, but do you feel like maybe you've missed out on something with Jesus? You know, maybe it's, Maybe it's you didn't go to Sunday school, you didn't grow up in the church, you didn't hear those Bible stories, and so maybe you feel like you've missed out, that you're not in the, the quote-unquote right spot. Or, or maybe God was prompting you to do something and, and you didn't take action, and so you, you maybe missed out on something that he wanted to have you experience or do. Man, that feeling of missing out, it, it was pressing on Thomas, it presses on us. But, but what we can do is we can take hope in this, that this is just the beginning of the story of Thomas that we're looking at. That, that God is not done writing Thomas's story in this moment, and he's not done writing your story. And he has designed and planned things in your life to occur to bring you to this moment. And so you haven't missed out because God is carefully working in your life. And, and so, I, you know, Thomas is there. He hears all these things, and, and what we can learn about Thomas by reading the gospel is that he is a man who needs proof. He is a man who needs proof. So, so if we look at John chapter 14, we see Jesus is teaching the disciples, right? And, and he says, Jesus says, if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas, being the one searching for truth, thinking logically, he's like, okay, but Jesus, how do we, we, we don't know where we're going. How can we know the way? Like, can you give us like a map? Like, what roads are we supposed to take? What town are we meeting you in? He's just thinking so practically and logically. And Jesus over here talking about the spiritual reality. And, and Thomas is like, what, Jesus, what, like, can you send, like, I'll type it into Google, like, don't worry, I'll, I'll get there. Just tell me how, tell me the way. And, and then Jesus answers with this famous line, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And, and we see that even though Thomas questions, and, and he, he prompts 
God for more that without Thomas asking, without his curiosity and, and desire for truth, we would not have gotten those famous words. And many of us feel like maybe, maybe in our church experience and uh, in our culture that, that doubt is really not welcome. That, you know, you got to come to church and put on your Sunday best and clean yourself up and, you know, no, no, no room for questions. You don't believe Jesus is the Son of God? Like, what? But what, what we see Thomas doubting here is that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That is a core moment to the gospel message. And, and so it's, not that the Bible tells us that we can't doubt. It doesn't forbid doubt. Rather, that our doubt would actually lead us to the source of all truth, Jesus. That our doubt would lead us to Jesus. So Thomas hears this kind of crazy news, and he says, unless I see the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Never believe. What a bold statement by Thomas, you know. They say never say never, and Thomas is going to learn the hard way. But uh, he, what he's doing, he's drawing this mark in the sand. He's digging in his heels, and he says, no, I will not believe unless I see this evidence. Because because what Thomas, we could just kind of get in his mind here, says, I know, I trust my friends, but, but I know Jesus died. I know where he's buried. And, and they say that the tomb is empty, but, but does that mean that he's alive again? That he's risen? Yeah, right. Thomas doubts this moment and that, that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead. He doubts that this too-good-to-be-true news could even be possible. But man, we, we can't be hard on Thomas. You and I are just the same. We doubt. Everyone has doubts. Writer Michael Novak says that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as, is it, as it is a razor's edge that runs through every soul. Many believers tend to think doubters are given over to meaningless, moral confusion and despair, and many doubters assume believers are non-thinking, dogmatic, judgmental moralizers. But the reality is we all have believing and doubt inside of us, for we all have the same contradictory information to work with. Everyone has doubt. Is this a safe place? Can I share with you a moment, what it was like in my moment of doubt. I, I remember this season of doubt that I walked through, questioning so many things. And, and what it stemmed from was I'd cut off my relationships with my friends. I'd stopped responding, my family. I stopped reading my Bible every morning. And I isolated myself. And in this doubt, I began to question so many things about my life. Is this, is this real? Do I actually believe that? If so, what does that mean? And, and I even begin to question myself, am I doing the right thing? Who am I? What, what is my purpose? All these questions begin to flood in and this doubt. But can I tell you where our doubt comes from? Page two of the Bible, Genesis chapter three. What we see is that God created Adam and Eve in this garden, 
and, and he, he's welcoming me. He's like, hey guys, so glad you're here. Um, I have big plans for us. Uh, we're gonna partner together and rule and reign over creation. Um, this is the garden is for you. Just that one, one tree over there, don't eat from that tree. It's the, tr- knowledge of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one over there. But, but everything else, there's a swimming, like a little pool over there. You can swim in there. There's fresh fruit right here. Just like the world is your oyster, go and, and be fruitful, multiply. Like, let's, let's do it. I'm excited. I'll see you guys later. And who slithers along but the serpent? And he says, did God really say? And he plants the seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees of the fruit of the garden? And he's like, no, 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 just that one. And then the serpent says, God is holding out on you. He knows that when you eat of that fruit that you will become like him. And so he's trying to deceive you. And, and what what the enemy does is he plants seeds of doubt and pits us against God and, and perpetuates the lie that God does not want our good. And you know what Adam and Eve do? They listen. Instead of listening to the voice of God, they fall prey to the whispers of the enemy. And, and what's frustrating about this is that it doesn't stop there. The enemy likes to take our difficult situations and and use those to actually fuel the doubt and perpetuate that lie that God does not want what's best for you, that actually God is holding out on you and what you need to do is reach out by yourself and take it. And that's the lie. One of the most difficult moments in my life, I was 16 and, and I lost my cousin to suicide and I just remember on the way to the funeral, I was looking anywhere for hope, and I turned to the book of Job and just wrestling with these big questions in life, these big doubts that I had. Like, God, if you're so good, why would you allow this to happen? If you are so loving, why don't I feel loved right now? And, and I wish, I wish that God in that moment opened the clouds and was like, Jordan, listen, hear Here's the explanation. Here's why I'm doing this. But, but he didn't do that. And, and what can be difficult but also comforting is that we might not know the answer. I, I can't tell you why you're in that difficult situation right now today. But I can tell you this. I know somebody who has the answer. His name is Jesus. And so he has the answers and, and he, he promises that we will know them one day, maybe not in this lifetime, but in the one to come. And we will understand all the reasons. But that doubt, it can feel so overwhelming. And the question that becomes, if I'm angry and upset with God and have these doubts and questions, how is God gonna react? How is he gonna respond? And, and what I would say is this, the way that God responds to Thomas is how he responds to you and me in the moments of our doubt. We see Thomas, you know, is still with the disciples, which should be noted that they did not cast the doubter out. They welcomed him in. And, and they didn't say, we have seen the Lord and you should have been there. No, they just, just invite him in. They love him. And so Thomas is with his friends and disciples, and, uh, friends who are the disciples, and they lock the door because uh, they're afraid of the Jews. And they're all in the room praying. And who shows up? 
Jesus. He enters this locked room, and it says he stood among them, and he says this word, shalom, which means peace. Peace be with you. They are still struggling with the fear and the, the running from the Jews, and Thomas is there wrestling with doubt, and Jesus comes with his presence and brings about peace. Peace be with you. And he, he doesn't miss a beat, and he looks right at Thomas, and he says, hey, put your hands in the holes and reach out your hand and put it in my side. Look, stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. The first thing we see is Jesus just shows up. He just shows up with his presence. And he provides the evidence. And I, I don't know about you, but often I'm tempted to believe that if I'm truly honest with God and I open up about my feelings and my doubts that that this isn't actually how Jesus would respond to me. In grade school, I was in band, and um, that was also a difficult year for me because my mom had been diagnosed with breast cancer, and so I remember just feeling kind of this guilt about like not practicing because our life had been flipped upside down, and you know, I, the the it's just it was a hard time. Yet. I was like, I feel like I need to go talk to my band teacher and just tell him how I'm feeling and explain why I'm not getting enough practice in or why, why the test seems so hard. And so with some coaching from my parents, we rehearsed what I was going to say. And I, I remember sitting in my band teacher's office and I said, hey, um, I'm sorry I haven't been practicing. It's just life's been really difficult and my schedule's changed with my mom and the diagnosis of cancer. And so I, I just want to say I'm sorry and I'm trying my best. He looks at me, I'll never forget this moment. He looks at me and he says, so you're using your mom as an excuse? I had came in open and honest and I had been met with judgment, condemnation, shame, guilt. And, and I would argue that for many of us in this room, that is our fear, that when we are actually open and honest with God, that we will be met with judgment and shame and guilt and him saying, you should have done better. Don't you read my Bible? Don't you say you're a Christian? You, like, we feel this. We feel this. And Jesus could have done the same thing to Thomas. Thomas, you were there. I rose Lazarus from the dead. And you don't believe I can raise from the dead? I'm the one with the power, not Lazarus. It's me. Or, Thomas, haven't you been listening? This is what I've been talking about the last three years is I'm going to die and three days later, I'm gonna to raise to new life. I'm the Messiah. Like, Thomas, come on. But we don't see any of that. We don't see him getting on Thomas's case or meeting him with judgment or shame or guilt. Rather, he meets Thomas with love and evidence. We have to remember and understand that God is not a grouchy, mean, fill-in-the-blank band teacher but rather, when we come to him, it's like when we're a kid and we get home from school and we run towards our fathers and they reach down and they scoop us up and hold them, hold us in their loving arms and they say, they're there. I'm here now. It's all gonna be okay. God loves us in our moments. You see, what Thomas does in his honesty is he opens the door. He opens the door to Jesus. And, and Tyler Staten in his book, Searching for Enough, puts it like this. This is a God who was not offended by this doubt, but drew near, making his presence known 
in the midst of doubt, responding to Thomas's honesty, honest rant like it was an invitation. God is not afraid of our doubt, our questions, our emotions. He sees them as an invitation to draw near. And not only did Jesus show up with his presence, but he provides evidence. He says, look, look at my hands. Put your finger there. He's not afraid. He says, look at this wound. Put your hand in. And what Jesus is inviting Thomas to do is to look and see that the wounds of Jesus are evidence of his great love for him. He's saying, listen, I got these in your place. Look to the cross where I gave my life and you'll see how much I love you, how much I care for you, and that this, yes, this, me here with you, Thomas, is real. And to us, Jesus says the same thing. David Guzak puts it like this. There is a clear lesson. When you want assurance, look to the wounds of Jesus. They are evidence of his love, of his sacrifice, of his victory, of his resurrection. And this is what we're invited to do. Look to the cross of Jesus and see him pouring out his love for you and me and paying the price for our sin, giving us new life and putting us in right relationship with our heavenly father, our creator. I don't know how many of you in this room are runners and, and maybe you are, maybe you aren't and you just like to work out and maybe you'll hear this and just kind of like imagine it and like get sweaty. Um, no offense, but, uh, but runners, and, and I've experienced when I've run is, you have this kind of chant that you tell yourself. You're like, I just got one more mile, one more mile, one more mile. Or like, hey, I can make it to the end. I can make it to the end. I can make it to the end. This chant that you kind of, you're pushing yourself. You're giving yourself motivation to, to continue pushing forward. And what we see in scripture is that Jesus, going through the whole, whole ordeal of dying on the cross, he actually had you in mind. He was thinking about you. You were right there. You were present in the top of his mind. And, and I imagine, can't help but imagine, that through every moment, Jesus had a chant, this is worth it for you. Fill in, fill in the blank there, for your name, for you. He said it was worth it. And I just imagine, you know, as they're whipping him, psh, psh, or pounding in the nails, tr, tr, he's just, I'm gonna fill in my own name, fill in your name, for Jordan. For Jordan, this is for you. And he's thinking about you in that moment because he knows that this is worth it, that he might get to know you and pour out his love on you and walk in right relationship with you. And because of this unconditional love, we then have confidence. We move from insecurity to security and we can say, no matter what may come, no matter the difficulty, I have confidence in my Savior. I can have assurance in every season of life that Jesus will be right by my side. And as Jesus is showing the hands and the side to Thomas, we're never told if he actually reaches out and touches it, but just seeing, something begins to change in Thomas. Something, something begins to, to take place, and, and we see doubting Thomas go to declaring Thomas. He proclaims, my Lord and my God. He proclaims that Jesus is God. He knows that, that Jesus is the Lord. Because you see, doubt is not the destination. 
It was never the destination for Thomas, and it is not the destination that God wants in your life. It's an important stop, but it's not the end. It's a tool that God uses in each of our journeys as we take steps closer to Jesus in faith. Listen, it's never where he wants us to stay and rest, but it strengthens our faith. Because through doubt, what God wants to do is meet you in that moment, remind you of his love on the cross, and move you from doubter to declarer in every area of your life, in every area. Whatever role you play, whether it's son, daughter, brother, sister, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, whatever it is, God wants to move you from doubter to declarer. And in every area of your life that you would declare that Jesus is king, that he is Lord, that he is God. And what we see, though, that this isn't the end of Thomas's story. Jesus says these, he asks a question to Thomas, and, and he says a statement, and I think the statement is really pointed towards us. Do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet still believe. Do you believe because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet still believe. From this, Adam Clark says, from this we learn that to believe in Jesus on the testimony of his apostles will put a man into, into the possession of the very same blessedness which they themselves enjoyed. And so has God constituted the whole economy of grace that a believer at 1,800 years' distance from the time of the resurrection suffers no loss because he has not seen Christ in the flesh. And so God has constituted the whole economy of grace that a believer at 2,000-some-odd years from the resurrection suffers no loss because he has not seen Christ in the flesh. We, we do not suffer a loss, church. We do not suffer a loss in our eternity or right standing with God because we believe based on the testimony of the apostles found in Scripture. We believe. And not only that, God understands God understands that it can be difficult to trust and, and believe in something that we, we haven't seen physically present. And so he reminds us, blessed, highly favored are those who do not see yet still believe. We are blessed. Are you walking through a season of doubt? Have you walked through a season of doubt? You will walk through a season of doubt. Jesus wants to meet you in those moments. And there will be answers to those difficult questions and moments. And there will be his presence in those difficult questions and moments. But don't hide from God because of your doubts. Don't let the enemy lead you into believing that God is going to meet you with judgment, shame, or condemnation. But in our doubts, be honest with God. Share your intense emotions because he can handle it. David, uh, the, 
one of the main author, authors of the prayer book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, he was known for, for being brutally honest with God, just so raw. If we look at Psalm 13, we see that he's letting God have it a little bit. It says this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Talk about honesty. Talk about venting to God. How long must I wrestle with these thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? David is saying, God, do you see how difficult it is? Are you not concerned? I have lots of questions, God. Why? Primarily, why? But what I love is that's, that's not the end of the psalm. He, he always ends moments like this reminding himself of how good God is. Verses five and six, six say this, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praises for he has been good to me. He's reminding himself, reminding the reader that things may be difficult. Share it with God. He wants to invite you in through that, but also remind yourself of how good he is. And I would encourage you to take note. Write down moments that you walk through where you see the goodness of God. You see him show up and provide in a miraculous way. And write it down and have it as your joy inventory to know that whatever questions you're going through, whatever difficulty you're going through, that you can bring those up to the face of doubt and say, yeah, but my God is like this. He has done this for me. And you can remember and, and be secured, held in the arms of a loving father. And I know things can feel overwhelming. The doubts of life and God, and the doubts of Doubting God can, can creep in, but, but we can be confident of this one thing. Jesus wants to encounter you in your moment of doubt with his radical love and his transformative presence. Let's pray, church. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you do not meet us with judgment or shame or guilt in our moments of doubt, but that you draw near you meet us with evidence of your love, the cross. And Jesus, I pray right now, if there's anybody walking through a season of doubt, that you would just meet them right now, that they would open the door in honesty to you and be met by your loving presence. And Lord, I pray for those of us who have walked through a season of doubt or going to walk through a season of doubt, God, that you would just continue to be preparing us by reminding us, teaching us that your love is so unconditional, that it is so powerful that we can be confident with you as our God.
and we can walk through whatever situation saying, if God is for me, who can stand against me? Lord Jesus, we just pray right now all this in your heavenly name. Amen.